Hi, Pro State listeners. We have some exciting news for you. We're going to do our first ever live show. We're going to be at the New York State Bar Association on Wednesday, January 16th at 11 in the morning. If you're going to attend that conference, it's in New York City at the Hilton Hotel in Midtown. Please join us for the show. We're still working out all the all the details. Should be an interesting interesting time to see us up on stage. But um, we know for sure that we're going to have Association President Michael Miller uh, with us, who is later that day hosting a summit discussion on important topics like the Me Too movement uh, and wrongful convictions and, and, and other big issues in the legal industry. So we'll chat with them about those issues and, and some other initiatives. We're finally excited to, uh, to do it live as we've all, as we've always talked about, uh, we are, as Bill said, firming up, uh, some possible additional interviews. So just stay tuned on that front. But for now, uh, again, you can mark it on your calendars, January 16th, 11 AM, the New York state bar association's annual conference in midtown Manhattan. Uh, hopefully we will see you there. And now, uh, to the show. Welcome to Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-host, Bill Donahue. For the last time in 2018, hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hi, guys. Yeah, so this is our final show it's of true. the year. Yes, um, and I wanted to put on the table, I have a I have a debate topic Okay. Uh, we can just engage in for a few minutes. Uh, it's a little meta, because it's a debate about debates. Oh. Okay. And I would, I would, I just want to ask, what is the more tiresome holiday season debate? Is it... Holiday uh, season movie debate specifically. Is it more tired to debate is Die Hard a Christmas movie Uh, or is it more tired to debate is Love Actually a good movie? (laughs) Oh, I love that so much. Because I'm Um, sick of both of them and they pop up every year. I have firm opinions on both of those debate questions. That's that's not what I'm asking, though. I get it. We we can touch on that. (laughs) So the one I would more prefer to engage in is the discussion about if Love Actually is a good movie. Is good. Yeah, that's, mm-hmm. what I, that's what I thought you would say. I'd yeah. like to just reference that Love Actually has like a 9-11 reference very early in it. It's true. Yeah. Mm. It's, uh, it's, it's a jarring moment. I rewatched it recently. You're yeah. making just, uh, um, plot points for where I come down on this argument. The internet. Is, the, no, it is not Also, the, 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 um, the card thing. Like, there oh. are many aspects of Love Actually that have, have really aged. Yeah, poorly. I mean... But yes, I, I, I. My thing, yeah, we can. The diehard, the diehard thing is 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 sort of dumb. I think I don't know. I, I, they're both dumb. I, also, isn't the I just think we need new, we way need new more de- settled? Like, what do you really debate? I mean, I, I think it's pretty clear that's a Christmas movie. Diehard. Yeah. Good. Yeah, I just think it's a movie that like it's so. Well, we're gonna get into the debate again. <laughs> no, that's okay. I actually, <laughs> I actually came down. It. Yeah, no, I did. Um, well, now, well, now we've at least weighed in on the initial question. Uh, you know. I think it's like uh like concentric circles of Christmas movies where like there's movies that are like about Christmas, sure. the Santa uh-huh. the Santa Claus Elf, A Christmas Story, of Christmas course. Vacation. Then there are movies where Christmas is like a theme. I think these things are all yes, or a theme or a setting rather. Uh-huh. I think they all fall within the umbrella of Christmas. movies. Here's a good weird one. To me, it all counts. Maybe the most the most 
you know, critically acclaimed classic Christmas movie, It's a Wonderful Life. Yeah. Not a whole lot of it takes place like on Christmas. Yeah. It's, I mean, he it's, wakes you know, it's up a climactic, on Christmas. Sure. It's a climactic ending of the movie, but. Uh, but yeah, you run through the whole you guy's, run through his whole, whole life. life. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, anyway, uh, in the spirit of not engaging in those debates, thanks, because uh, even though we all just did that. Uh, I don't know. Anyone have any, any other thoughts? I mean, I think we should get right down to it. We're going to do a recap of all the biggest stories of the year. Oh, yeah. We didn't even mention what we're doing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah this, I, I, we did this at the end of last year, and I actually listened back to that, and you know, a lot of themes are going to pop up again I noticed. this yeah. year. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but we, um, as we go through the list of what we thought were the biggest legal news stories, um, just want everyone to know they're not in any particular order. Yeah. We just picked the ones we thought were really big. We didn't rank these or anything like yeah, that because it's hard to compare. They're there's not going to be a debate over this. Thank, yeah. thank God for that. Um, and <laughs> well, I'm, yeah, go. yeah, let's go into our very first one. Our okay. very first one. So, as you mentioned, the Me Too movement was, you know, it feels like a, it feels like, I mean, because it, it began so dramatically in 2017 um, with all the, you know, initially with all the allegations against Harvey Weinstein in the yeah. fall of 2017. But it, 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 it's arguably a bigger 2018 story. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there's plenty of stuff we could talk about. The, the criminal charges brought against Weinstein this year, um, the continued downfall of really powerful men like Les Moonves at, uh, at CBS. Yeah. Um, We've talked a bunch on the show about all the different ways it's hit the legal industry, like all the... The listeners have heard me sigh over and over yeah. again. And, the, the and pl- Judge Kaczynski at the Ninth Circuit, he stepped down this exactly. year, which we talked about on the show last year, but yeah. But the biggest, I mean, arguably the biggest, one of the biggest stories of the year generally, but particularly for the legal profession, was um, the nomination for the Supreme Court uh, and the subsequent sexual abuse accusations against uh, Brett Kavanaugh. Yeah, I mean, getting a new Supreme Court justice, like we talked about, Gorsuch on this on the version of this show last year because that's always a big legal news story Um, and it certainly would have been one of the biggest stories anyway and then it sort of um, spun into a different rather unpleasant direction and this one did sort of bring all of these things together that we watch so closely yeah it's a million different threads whether it's the political threads of what it means for the court or the what people say are the disregard for norms or it's the you know the Me Too movement like you said so um, just a little bit of background I mean um, Anthony Kennedy, who was the longtime swing vote on the Supreme Court, he announced his retirement in June, which uh, it gave President Trump his second high court seat to fill um, in only two years in office. And the the real key and the reason why I think it was such a bigger deal on a lot of levels than the Gorsuch thing was that it would sort of decisively swing the court um, ideologically more toward Mm -hmm. the right. And it didn't take long before people started speaking out about Kavanaugh as a person to be selected for the seat. Too. Exactly. I mean, um, so and he's been he's been thrown around a lot in the last, uh, you know, that he's a sort of standard character for that a Republican president would nominate as a Supreme Court justice. Um, longtime GOP attorney who worked on the Ken Starr investigation. Um, he was a longstanding judge on the D.C. Circuit, which yeah. is one of the most powerful appellate courts in the country. And he clerked for Kennedy. And he that, did. And there was... Completely and, unsurprising yeah. pick. No, no, no yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, the Democrats didn't like him, but they weren't going to like whoever Trump nominated. And and I think we talked about it on the show. Kavanaugh was not the, you know, the the, the most ideologically conservative of the people that, that were discussed as potential Trump nominees. Yeah. Confirmation started in... Confirmation hearings started in September, and it was pretty raucous. There were protests. Um, Democrats pushed back a lot, but it it ultimately, it it wasn't particularly eventful. I mean, the Democrats were hoping that maybe Susan Collins or, uh, you know, that that some of these more centrist Republicans would would push back maybe on the pro-life stuff. Mm -hmm. 
none of that happened. So yeah. we were, you know, we, we got through the confirmation hearings and it looked pretty clear that, that Kavanaugh was going to be confirmed. But then we had a big, huge plot twist. Yeah. Uh, um, so it was about a week after the hearings in September and you started to hear these sort of, you know, you, you, the, a report here or a report there about lightly sourced. Yeah, yeah. exactly. That, um, that there was this, some weird, uh, accusation against Kavanaugh floating around sort of in the back channels in DC. Um, on September 16th, the story became public. The Washington Post ran a story detailing allegations from a college professor named Christine Blasey Ford, who said that at a high school party in the 1980s, Kavanaugh and his friend Mark Judge had pushed her into a bedroom during the party. Um, Kavanaugh had pinned her down. He had attempted to remove her clothing. Um, and uh, he held his hand over her mouth when when she tried to scream. Um, very graphic story. Yeah. Um, over the next week, more stories came out about Kavanaugh. Um, a classmate at Yale, um, Deborah Ramirez, said that Kavanaugh exposed himself to her at a party. Um, another woman, Julie Swetnick, uh, said that she had been at parties where she had seen this kind of behavior happening. Um, so yeah, uh, it was yeah, a, it, it was a wild couple days. It there. really it really built um, into this crescendo. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So all these stories were coming out, and it was um, really just. Uh, Allegations that were pretty bad, as you've outlined, um, and sides were starting to form about who believed who and that kind of thing. And it led us into a series of hearings, um, a, a big day of hearings between Blasey Ford giving her side of the story yeah. and Kavanaugh himself testifying. It was sort of a sort of a rare singular moment in 20, 2018. You know that that the it's a we live in a very fragmented media world, and I, we I don't get think, those moments um, anymore. I think the thing that really struck me, aside from the actual you know, testimony itself. Um, there were all of these images of like people on the subway watching it on their yeah. phone, people in airports and diners. And it really seemed like the whole nation and, and the people around the world were watching to see what happened. Well, you walked around our newsroom and it was just quiet because no one was on the phone. Everyone had headphones yep. in listening to the hearing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but so Blasey Ford and Kavanaugh headed to the to Capitol Hill on September 27th for this, this climactic hearing. And um, she gave obviously a very wrenching retelling of the the outline of the events that that I just described mm-hmm. um and answered questions for for I think it was like 90 minutes or 2 hours it was long oh was yeah. Long, yeah and um, and 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 questions which we didn't mention yet the that the 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 majority had hired a uh, a prosecutor basically right. uh, yeah. who was serving or is a you know she was an attorney uh, Rachel Mitchell I think was her name yeah. and she was like filling the gap because there are no female uh, GOP members on the Judiciary Committee. So that was just another kind of weird, very weird thing optics. where like she's being cross-examined in like little five-minute segments between comments from oh, the, that the was, minority. And that was the lead into the hearings of like, what is the standard here? Are we, are yeah. we, is this a criminal trial yeah. where we have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt? Is it, or is it just more like a job interview where, yeah. where any sort of doubt here means that he shouldn't be confirmed for right. this lifelong appointment. And then the tone between, because the, the day was basically split up where it was Christine Blasey Ford testifying first and her tone um, was very, there was a lot of emotion and a lot of sincerity. Yeah. And both sides sort of agreed on that. And then we switched to the questioning of Kavanaugh and it was very fiery. It was like a whole nother, <laughs> it felt like you, you when Kavanaugh was finished, it felt like Blasey Ford's testimony was six weeks ago. Yes, it was, absolutely. Because yeah. uh, yeah. he came out and he was, you know, he was visibly angry and yeah. he was at borderline screaming at one point. And, that, and he lashed out. He said he said a lot of things that I think later people said, even if, you know, even if all of these accusations aren't true, yeah. the the 
partisan tone of your response here was individual, like was right. separately it was problematic. Like a, it was, a phrase and, and judicial a temperament of, got, got exactly. thrown around a lot. Exactly. Yeah. So, so yeah, where, yeah, where did we all build to that on that? Uh, and I think, and I think it's important to remember just before we go on that, like, it's important to disregard hindsight here. Like we ended that day not knowing, having no idea what was going to happen. Yeah, it's that true. It, it seems, you know, it in hindsight, we all know what happened, but, um, so the next day there was an agreement brokered by Jeff Flake, who, um, he's a lame duck. He's been a big critic of, of Trump. He said, I'm not going to – I'll send this through to the floor, um, to the full Senate, yeah. but only on the condition that there's this one-week investigation by the FBI into these claims and to Kavanaugh. Um, so the investigation started to unfurl. There were accusations from Democrats that it was pretty perfunctory yeah. and that they didn't even talk to right. Blasey Ford. Um, a week later – the investigation didn't make any difference. Um, uh, it was delivered to the Senate on the 4th, and the key vote was um, on the 5th. Susan Collins, um, the, the Republican from Maine, who some people thought would would flip, gave a speech as to why she was voting for, and then sort of pushed it forward, and he was, you know, he was formally confirmed on the 6th. It was... Um... I mean, there's a reason we're talking about it. it was, I mean, we we said at the beginning we weren't ranking. I mean, in my opinion, this is one of the biggest stories of the year. And the idea of, like, we began by talking about the Me Too movement and its political and cultural ramifications. The idea that it then played out – I mean, some people would tell you that a Supreme Court seat is, like, a more important job than the presidency. Right. right. Like, the idea that it, that I mean, it could play out – it's a lifetime appointment. Right. Um, the idea that it could play out with like under these stakes was like fascinating um, and sometimes very sad to watch. It's also interesting just to watch it, just to compare it to you know the most famous thing was the com- the comparisons to Anita Hill back in 1991, right? And the 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 different way in which ultimately it didn't turn out any differently, but the 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 amount of attention here and the you know the it was interesting to see how this would be handled in. The context of a world where we view accusations of sexual abuse in a very different way. Especially since some of those guys are still on the committee, by the way. And to me, this story, um, not just in a legal context, but just for the country as a whole, it just has this overarching feeling of we're already such a divided nation anyway. And this really calcified a lot of those divisions. Um, I think people went into it um, with their own sets of biases and feelings about it. And after this raucous spectacle people came down even further entrenched because the i i think i talked about this with you bill um in the lead up to it because i was like surround like when all these allegations started coming out like you there was an argument you made like if you were just some border like like run-of-the-mill conservative like you could say like okay there's too much smoke around this person like we confirmed like gorsuch was a contentious vote but it was but it went through because he didn't have right. any of this going on it's like there are a number of conservative just judges that you could just pick right um and then but like you say about about calcification like there was a like you could feel the white house like digging in yes um very deeply when uh, to get him across the finish line second story we want to tackle today, I'm going to take us to something I always want to talk about, but this year it actually was one of the biggest legal stories, and that's yeah. all of the issues surrounding immigration. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, 
I don't even really know where to start. There was uh, so a million different things that happened. But it seems and like the biggest thing was was the family separation. It was. Crisis. And and so we're going to take down through several of these because it really was a year where it felt like we were on a bullet train. And as soon as one thing would resolve, another one would happen. Yeah. So, yeah, let's go to family separation because I think that caught the zeitgeist the most acutely this year. Um, This summer, it came to light that the Trump administration had separated thousands of kids from their parents at the southern border. Mm -hmm. And the reason that was happening is because they had instituted what was called a zero tolerance policy for prosecuting people who came across the the border without authorization. Um, That's why you got some pretty dramatic footage. There were you know, uh, photos of kids in cages and mm-hmm. uh, in big sort of warehouse-looking areas, audio of pe- people crying. Um, basically, everyone you can imagine spoke out against this at the time. It was foreign heads of state. It was every living first lady, hundreds of religious leaders. You had members of both uh, political parties saying that this was not um, the America that they wanted to see and that this policy was a real problem. So, as you can imagine... This wound up in court eventually. Yeah, but I mean, to your point, I mean, the, the legal action was so f- like fast and furious. Yes. you know, as you say, it was like a, like like anybody had grounds for you know to, to file some kind of challenge. And I know that like the one that got sort of the most traction was an, as as happened with travel ban, which we we'll talk about was the ACLU. So yeah, the ACLU has really been on the forefront with a lot of yeah. these issues this year, and they filed a suit in California that was ultimately one that reached a sell- settlement that facilitated some reunifications, mm-hmm. but it was a bumpy road to get there. There were many lawsuits against um, these this zero tolerance policy. There's also a lot of legal back and forth about something called the Flores settlement, and that's about how long you can detain children. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so without getting too deep into that, the, the overarching thing here is that the Trump administration put in place what they thought was a, a policy that would deter immigration. Mm-hmm. It created a lot of downstream problems that they had to work out in the court system. And it also saw President Trump, for one of the first times with any of his immigration initiatives, uh, rolling back a bit. There mm-hmm. was a point where he issued a, a proclamation where he um, took away some of the teeth of this policy. Yeah. Um, but it's all just been really messy, even as this reached some kind of resolution. Right. There's still, even right now, some families who have not been reunited. Right. It's a much smaller proportion than when it was at its maximum. But in part, that's because during the midst of when all of this was happening, some parents got deported while their kids were still in U.S. custody. Yeah. And there were a lot of news stories that came out and revealed that the administration hadn't kept really great records mm-hmm. about either the parents or the kids or both. And so reuniting people was very, very messy. And a lot of outside groups, um, charities, attorneys volunteering pro bono had to step in and try to get these families back together. So while this distinct crisis did reach a bit of a resolution, there are tendrils going on into 2019 to, yeah, really, to really wrap it up. Another, another story we saw that, that get at least... <clears throat> for the time being resolved was um, President Trump's sort of infamous travel ban. Man. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, let's talk about the travel ban again. So harken back, guys, to right after Trump actually took office. This is the one where very abruptly he instituted a ban on nationals from certain mostly Muslim countries mm-hmm. from entering the United States. That's where you saw all of those protested airports around the whole country. Um, it was done so quickly that that was part of the uproar there, that people were trapped as they were traveling back to the United States. And there was just a lot of upheaval. Yeah. 
And I think this is really instructive to talk about um, this year. And the reason we're talking about it as our 2018 show, even though it was first instituted in 2017, yeah. it's because we got resolution at the Supreme Court ultimately. Yeah. But I think part of why I wanted to talk about all of these things is to show how similar they all are. So the way we talked about this, this family separation thing, it was an abruptly instituted policy that had a lot of downstream effects yeah. and then was challenged in court and had a lot of uproar. Very similar to travel ban. Yeah. An abruptly instituted policy, challenged in court, lots of public fervor about what it was doing. So basically, um, there were three travel bans. It was this third iteration that made it all the way to the Supreme Court this past year. And um, a 5-4 decision came out about the travel ban upholding the president's right to have put this in place. And what did they like what did the opinion like hold specifically? Yeah, so the, the justice the justices adopted, There was like questions about like what he can do in the name of national security that's and exactly like pr- right. prudent policymaking, but yeah. So they they took hold of the administration's position that the ban itself was facially neutral and it was to advance like you said national security mm-hmm. interests. Um, and that he had that authority under the Immigration and Nationality Act. That's one of the main immigration, federal mm-hmm. immigration laws. Um, but there were, there was a lot of pushback about that, and at least four justices didn't quite buy into that argument. Um, the argument on the other side had been that Trump had made so many statements, both as a candidate and as president, right. about it being a Muslim ban right, that there was the discriminatory trail, intent. Yeah, yeah. So ultimately, um, his power, especially as it relates to national security, trumped those arguments that there was discrimination Hmm. behind it. So where does that leave us now? Well, it means that there is still a version of the travel ban that exists. And it more broadly means that when it comes to immigration issues that in any way implicate national security, there is broad birth for what the president can do in the name of that. And mm-hmm. and I think we're going to continue to see that play out as an executive power issue. Well, and especially the the issue of when the president has said something that, you know, <laughs> over and over and over again. Yeah. And it, it, that's a, that's certainly a thing we've seen come up in other issues. Yeah. Um, yeah. Speaking of the president saying a bunch of stuff over and over and over again, I want to get into sort of the third bullet point on my long list of immigration things. Yeah. And that's a current crackdown on asylum seekers. Yeah, and I need you to walk us through this because I'm not sure we ever actually talked about this on the show. Ooh. It just it, it falls in the immigration basket because it was such a, a enormous yeah. story this year. So just so. for a little bit of setup, I think people will sort of key in and remember this because there was so much discussion leading up to the midterm elections about a caravan of Honduran migrants that right. were coming up through through. Um, South and Central America up to, uh, up to Mexico and, mm-hmm. and what we were going to do about that. So Trump really doubled down on all of the types of rhetoric we're talking about here. Um, Trump has been a, a hardliner in immigration from the moment he announced his candidacy, and it's just never stopped. Mm-hmm. So he decided to send troops to the southern border to deal with this caravan that was questioned by many, but he said it was, again, in the name of securing the border and keeping the country safe. He told reporters around the same time that he would maybe end um, something called birthright citizenship, which means if you're born in the U.S., you automatically are a U.S. citizen. Um, Which the 14th Amendment, like almost like by almost any plain reading, like would 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 seem to forbid. That's right. There's very little wiggle room there, but there's a few legal scholars out there who say there might be a window for that. So he was really doubling down on these things. And the other thing he did was issuing this proclamation that restricts. Um, asylum unless you have come in through a port of entry and requested asylum at that port of entry. So 
that's a pretty bold move. How, do, how often, does that change from like what the what what it what the asylum practice normally is? So, like you can just so normally for a couple reasons you can already be in the country yeah. and then file seeking asylum. Mm-hmm. So um, this is important for a few reasons. One, asylum is something that is a little bit more sacrosanct among uh, immigration issues because these are people who are fleeing difficult conditions. We have a lot of treaties with other countries that protect right. um, people's ability to at least request asylum. And what we also have, I mentioned the Immigration and Nationality Act before. That's our main uh, immigration law in this country. And that specifically has a part in it that says that you can apply for asylum no matter where you are. You don't have to be at a port of entry. And it points mm-hmm. it out pretty specifically. So, guys, guess what happened after this? Hmm. I, is there any way that a court got involved? Uh, yeah, you know, I mean, it's really, <laughs> it's amazing how all of these are in this cycle. It certainly has, it has acted like a, um, what's the blue ink you put into your veins so you can see your veins better? It's done yeah. that for our, like, no, not for our, like, civic system. Like, <laughs> totally. It's, show, it's certainly <laughs> yep. showing how the whole thing works. So so Trump uh, issued this proclamation, put this rule in place, and it was uh, promptly challenged, ACLU and others, and it was enjoined by several federal courts. In fact, just yesterday, another, um, another ruling in that vein came out. So the court put a hold on it, but what does that leave, where does that leave us going forward? We're still going to work our way through the courts. I think um, some people are saying that this might make it up to the Supreme Court, as many of these immigration ones seem to do these days. Mm -hmm. Um, The administration has actually asked the Supreme Court to allow the rule to go into effect um, while it's playing out in the appeals process, but the court hasn't decided on that yet. So um, we're in a bit of a holding pattern on that one, but I think what I'd like everybody to take away about immigration in 2018 is this idea that we really are in this repeating cycle where the administration is pushing really tough policies and it doesn't look like they're going to stop anytime soon. And then we get pushback from um, immigrant advocates and and the ACLU and others in court. So I think we're going to see a lot more of this as we continue into the next year. We've been going for you know, 25 minutes or so here, and we haven't mentioned Robert Mueller yet. We have to. Uh, We're obligated. This was another, um, again, we, we talked about it last year. We may talk about it again next year. Uh, it was Who another. Knows? It was another big year for uh, the alleged crime doing of the President of the United States uh, and his uh, friends and business associates. I mean, I made a comment when I was talking about immigration that it felt like a bit of a bullet train that just sort of kept going. Yeah. Um, this that analogy was used too soon. I think this is really yeah. the one. I think it's also really helpful to do the Mueller investigation in a segment like this because it's one of those things where when you're watching it unfold, it's hard to know what developments because there's so many developments. Yeah. It's hard to know what's important. And when you pull back like this and you know view it in totality, it's easier to sort of figure out what happened over the course of the year. All right, Alex, give us some buckets we can understand. I've tried to organize all the stuff that happened because the, the the real story is, I mean, Mueller was going on for a while. The real story that happened this year, while that was plugging along, there were all these different little things that began to pop up and they had sort of tangential connection to what Robert Mueller is looking at. Um, but I've, I've, I've basically grouped it into about like three different uh, sort of buckets, like you say, for us to understand. Uh, the first one, um, on its face, doesn't didn't begin by having anything to do uh, with Robert Mueller. And this, um, this is the sort of batch of legal entanglements surrounding uh, 
Trump and his alleged uh, payments to women that he had uh, sexual relationships with to buy their silence ahead right. of the 2016 election. We've talked about this quite a lot, uh, including just last week, right? Um, with regard to Michael Cohen, the the like the the emergence of Michael Cohen, like as <laughs> like a character we understand, is the real story. I think of of 2018 <laughs> regarding Trump's legal problems, but. Uh, this one actually like is the most sort of 2018 of them because it's hard to remember, but it did begin way back in January. It's wild that the Stormy Daniels thing started in January. Oh yeah, I mean right. it feels like of this year. Yeah, I mean I felt like I was in like in high school when that <laughs> happened. But like um, in any case, uh, way back in January, the Wall Street Journal, who sort of led the way on this story uh, at every turn, wrote that Trump and Cohen had paid one hundred thirty thousand dollars to Stormy Daniels, the former porn star. Um, to basically keep quiet, uh, signed a non-disclosure agreement about um, the fact that she had um, sex with Trump while he was married several years ago. Um, when the journal started reporting this, um, you know, was reporting about the existence of this non-disclosure agreement, the White House um, immediately went into just complete uh, stonewalling. They're like, there's no truth to this. Uh, this affair didn't happen. These payments didn't happen. All of this. Trump actually, for which in, in, in a rare, you know, bit of sort of um, restraint from him, people, you forget this now, but he went quiet about this for like several months. Oh, yeah. Um, and like uh, there's the, like the infamous clip of him on Air Force One saying, you're going to have to talk to Michael Cohen. And boy, did they talk to Michael Cohen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's get into Michael Cohen. Yeah. Because he's really the linchpin to how we've learned things about this this year. Right. And the, the, um, the they story- stopped by to talk to Michael Cohen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So... Uh, once it got into the public eye, um, you know, everyone's like sort of talking about the existence of this NDA and Stormy Daniels, of course, goes on Anderson Cooper, begins talking about it. She and her attorney, Michael Avenatti, file a case um, saying, you know, like that with this this contract has been breached. We should be allowed to talk about this, all of that. So while that's going on, uh, Cohen like sort of immediately constructs this story of like, OK, we did pay this woman. But I, Michael Cohen, paid the sum, the $130,000, out of my own pocket. Right. I was not reimbursed by the president. I was not reimbursed uh, by the campaign. It's just a payment I made to this woman for no reason at all. <laughs> um, so I mean, it checks out. It, right. Um, so I he think says that. there was that. a weird yeah. detail that he paid it with like a home equity line of credit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he set up a shell company yeah. and all of that. Yeah, he took out like a mortgage on his home, right. basically. Um so that's already kind of funny and sad um, in its in its way. Um, in April, uh, the FBI raids Cohen's apartment, hotel room, and office um, as part of uh, a case they are building um, that basically frames this payment and the payment to uh, the payment to silence another woman, Karen McDougal, um, as campaign violations, which we've talked about several times. The idea that like if you made the payment. Um, to suppress information that would damage your campaign, this is an illegal campaign payment. There, and I, th- I think it's worth noting right here that yeah. just to understate how loyal Cohen was to Trump at this point, that that you know, if there was one person in the world who was going to go out and just do it of his own volition and pay a bunch of money to shield Trump from things, mm-hmm. it was going to be Michael Cohen. Yeah, and one of the things that they unearthed in those raids, of course, I, mean, I think we talked about it on the show, was um, a tape right. between uh, Cohen. And Trump, which raised sort of separate from the main political and legal angles, which raised interesting legal ethics questions, which you can listen to us talk about with Andrew Strickler. Um, so where did we end up with Cohen? Yeah. So 
Cohen, uh, basically this all culminates in him getting sentenced, uh, or, or rather getting, uh, pleading guilty in August um, to making these payments. Um, uh, but he goes beyond that because he's been saying he made the payments for a while. He finally reverses course and says, not only did I make the payments, I made the payments at the behest of Donald Trump, the president of the United States told me to do this. Individual one. Excuse me. Thank a, you, William. A, a presidential candidate. <laughs> yeah, individual one who uh, in the in January of 2017 became the president. So yes, individual one, read between the lines, Donald Trump, uh, told him to, to, like, this is no small thing. We've hammered right. this home many different times. So he said this in a court of law. The president told me to buy off these women and this media company who was going to run this story about Karen McDougal. Um, he told me to do that. He was he was then sentenced uh, just uh, a few weeks ago or two, two weeks ago, whatever it was, to when it was last week uh, to thirty six months, three years in jail for that. You mentioned at the outset that 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 this wasn't even the Mueller probe. This was the Southern District of New York. Yeah, the U.S. Is, Attorney's. Yeah, Office. I should have made that clear. Yeah, this is a this is a Southern District of New York probe. Now, I mean this 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 uh, speaks to. The idea that Trump was the kind of person, we talked about this last year, the kind of person who would attract litigation just with the kind <laughs> of stuff he got up to without going into any more detail. But um, so that was sort of the um, that was sort of the end of the road for Cohen. That's where we stand now. He said he's going to investigate with Mueller. Um, well, that leads us right into let's talk more about what's up with the Mueller probe at this point. Yeah. Because it's been going on for a while and we've seen some real action this year. So if last year, if 2017 is the year that it gets going and some preliminary indictments, this year we actually started seeing people like being charged and going to jail. Right. Uh, there were there was a lot of movement in that regard. Uh, it's best because this is such a wild cast of characters to just kind of go through the people that you know and tell you what happened to them this year. So <laughs> Paul Manafort, as I said, um, on the same day, that, that was a crazy day in August. It was a wild On the day. same day that Cohen pleaded guilty to these hush money payments uh, in a completely separate legal proceeding, Manafort was found guilty in Virginia federal court on eight counts of fraud stemming from his work for pro-Russian <laughs> operatives in Ukraine. Um, so that uh, led to a sort of a, a plea and a cooperation deal with Mueller in September. And it seemed like, okay, this is like, that seems to be settled. Like um, Manafort is, has copped a plea and he's cooperating with Mueller. Then it came to light uh, in November that uh, Mueller filed documents with the court saying that actually Manafort has been lying to me by <laughs> uh, about a great many things in the course of this uh, of this investigation. So he's feels like Paul's really banking on a banking on a pardon. Yeah, well, and that and that was in the ether too. You know, Trump has sort of like vaguely th you know floated the idea of like throwing life preservers in the form of pardons to people who are loyal and not doing so to people who aren't. Their, their names rhyme with Schmanafort and Schmoen. Uh, but in any case, uh, also Rick Gates, who I just mentioned, was Manafort's uh, business partner. He pled guilty to lying uh, about to the FBI about the work they were doing for the Ukraine uh, operatives. Uh, he's awaiting sentencing. He's also stru uh, struck a uh, plea deal or a uh, cooperation deal with Mueller. Um, Michael Flynn, the president's former national security advisor, uh, also pleaded guilty to lying to the FBI. It's a lot of lying to the FBI. Big year for lying to the FBI. Yeah. Well, that's like you read about, um, you know, criminal defense attorneys are like, everyone who's learning now that like people, that this is how investigations work. You get a bunch of people on the periphery for lying and then you flip them and then you move into the middle. Yeah. And that's what we're seeing here. <laughs> I mean, he, he pled guilty to lying about he when he was named Trump's national security advisor in the period between when Trump was elected and Trump took office, he was visiting with the Russian ambassador. He both kind of lied and diminished, uh, you know, the truth about the nature of those contacts. Um, 
Uh, interestingly, though, Mueller in that uh, regard has recommended no jail time for him. His sentencing was actually delayed uh, last week, so he's awaiting some finality there. Then, of course, there was uh, a little uh, some lesser players who actually went to jail. Uh, you might remember George Papadopoulos. Name rolls right off the tongue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was um, a Trump campaign guy um, who got sentenced to 14 days in prison for, wait for it, lying to the FBI <laughs> um, uh, just about, you know, I mean, like like you say, I mean, this, this, this um, investigation was underway. Um, Trump immediately, you know, leapt to minimize him. He said some low-level campaign worker named George prompting a million Seinfeld memes. Uh, in any case, the other one, uh, strictly in the legal sphere, was Alex Vanderswan. You remember him? Mm-hmm. Yeah. He was the Skadden attorney who had sort of liaised with Manafort and Gates for this Ukraine work they were doing. He served 30 days in prison. Can anyone guess? Um, I don't know. I don't know, Alex. Uh Lying to the FBI. He was lying to the FBI, <laughs> indeed. He said, oh, I didn't quite work with Manafort and Gates on this Ukraine stuff. So we have, like you say, Bill, we have a bunch of people who are sort of, you know, on the periphery. I mean, Manafort's on the periphery. He's a key figure. But, I mean, you know, they're they're sort of squeezing, putting, putting the squeeze on these people who can help them later. And that's sort of, you know, where we're at in this. So what are, what are some big takeaways? We've listed a bunch of people that are, like you say, being squeezed toward the middle. Yeah. Well, Where, it's imp- yeah. What's going on? It's important to note, of all the stuff I just mentioned, um, only a, like a handful of those are actually like Mueller-recommended jail sentences. Like the Manafort stuff um, and the Gates stuff um, was handled by federal prosecutors, but it was, you know, Mueller passed the case to them. Like it, it grew out of Mueller's investigation. Well, and Cohen was a referral to the Southern District. Yes. Um, and when you take all that in totality... You can look at that a couple ways. You can say, okay, like a skeptic of the Mueller investigation would say, oh, well, he doesn't have anything. This is small bore right. uh, side stuff that doesn't have anything to do with Russian interference in the election, Has you know, doesn't have to do with Trump. Um, and you can look at it that way. The other way is that um, this is all happening before a grand jury behind closed doors. Like Mueller has impaneled a grand jury. We know that. But sure. those proceedings are not public. So, un- you know, if you're um, more bullish on this investigation, you would say – Oh, you know, he's got so much going on. He's passing, he's triaging right. the less important stuff to like other authorities. A third way to look at it is that he's smart and he is, you know, if you pass it along to other aspects of the DOJ, it makes it harder to shut down a single, if it's you shut true. down the special prosecutor. Yeah. And these other offices are, are conducting their own independent investigations. Yeah. So this plows ahead. Um, we, I mean, there's no sign that it's gonna end anytime soon really i mean th- like prognosticators were like oh this like with every big piece of news it's like oh well this is this definitely is the big it. one right, yeah. right and you know that i'm not trying to minimize the what's going on here but like we've been saying that for a year there's no way to tell uh when this is going to happen so like i say there's a good chance we'll be talking about this next year um well let's also turn to i mean not that i want to uh muddy the waters even more with right. how much is going on but this isn't the only thing related to Mueller. there's been a lot of issues about keeping the investigation going yeah and things yeah so the, the, there's there's the sort of watchdog of the watchdog right. going on um most famously attorney general jeff sessions resigned from his post in november um after many months of prodding from trump over twitter <laughs> yeah um called him mr magoo which was really my right really my favorite part about the whole story yeah and he's like you know backhandedly referring to him by his first name and just like good going jeff like <laughs> yeah. on twitter um he doesn't know it's not a slack channel i guess or something 
Um, but yeah, Sessions famously recused himself at the very beginning of the Mueller investigation, which um, bugged Trump. Uh, that led to the ascension of uh, weightlifter slash patent licensing scam artist Matthew Whitaker mm. uh, to be the acting uh, attorney general, which is um, a, uh, a post he holds to this day. There were he expressed extreme skepticism about um, the propriety of the Mueller investigation, so people were extremely nervous about that. Um, but yeah, and when Whitaker was um, elevated to acting um, AG, there was all this talk about how he might make moves, even if they weren't super public, to shut down some funding yeah. or do some sort of behind the scenes things to impact Mueller. Do we know anything about that at this point? Well, I mean, well, b before we even get to that, I mean, it, it, it's worth noting that Trump has named a an actual permanent uh, successor right. to the job. It's uh, Bill Barr, William Barr, who was already has already been the attorney general under uh, George H.W. Bush. And then just today... We got news that he sent a memo. This is like, I'm, I feel like this is a lot of stuff, but he sent a memo to the Justice Department, apparently sua sponte as a former official, expressing skepticism about certain aspects of the Mueller probe. It was an interesting twist because he was viewed as sort of a, you know, a, a less controversial pick. Right. He was, he was under George H.W. Bush. He was, yeah. the, he was the attorney right. general. Like, Normal Republican right. guy. Right. Um, and then, but he has said, uh, he takes issue specifically with um, the idea that Trump could be held accountable for obstruction of justice for firing James Comey. He said, you know, pursuing that line of, if, if Mueller pursues that line of inquiry, that's a threat um, to executive power. The executive should be able to fire the FBI. I think director. the big sense from all of this is that it's not, it's not any of these individual parts is, is some sort of smoking gun, but it is this, there's a palpable sense that, that the legal jeopardy for the president is getting more intense as yeah. time goes by, that there's sort of this circling around him it's true. when it comes to all these different things, whether it's the campaign finance violations, whether mm -hmm. it's the Mueller probe itself, whether it's a few other things on the outside. Yeah. Uh, to your question, Amber, we know the only thing we kind of know about tr like specifically the White House's interaction with Mueller um, is that they have Trump's attorneys have confirmed that they have answered written questions from Mueller. Um, and Mueller has asked for more. Uh, there's no indication that Trump has yet been subpoenaed, which will be the subject of a whole separate legal battle if that ever <laughs> happens. Um, so so I guess we're going to just have to stay tuned. Lots going on that front. I would also just very quickly, I'd be remiss if I meant if, if I didn't mention all of this complete non Mueller stuff. Well, this is what this is what I meant. There's plenty of other stuff. Just to, <laughs> yes. Yeah. So the Trump Foundation, uh, which is the charitable organization uh, uh, of Trump's business empire, philanthropic organization, was sued by the New York Attorney General for appropriation of funds. They were uh, shut down just this week, uh, but that case uh, is still ongoing. There's the emolument suit about sort of payments that Trump has gotten through his private business adventures, whether that violates the Constitution. That uh, suit is moving forward in Maryland federal court. Uh, also, there is uh, the Wall Street Journal again has reported that federal prosecutors in Manhattan are investigating whether uh, Trump's 2017 inaugural committee, like the, the 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 committee that put on the inauguration ceremony, uh, uh, has um, basically shirked some 107 million dollars from donations. Uh, pretty wild. Um, I don't know if it's a federal crime to hire Three Doors Down to play a concert in 2017, <laughs> but I am not in the federal prosecutor's office uh, in Manhattan. Anyway, so as you can see, the president's legal problems remain manifold, and we will be at the watch for you here on Pro Se.
Guys, we made it to the end of the year and to the end of the show. Somehow. Well, we all have jobs, which is good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, is. so um, I want to thank a lot of people. First, I want to thank my co-host, Bill Donahue. Well, Amber, I want to thank you right back. Yay! And Alex Lawson. Thank you so much. And importantly, we have great producers on this show. Kelly Marcano, Stephen Trader, and Daniel Nicole Smith. Yes. And our whole Law360 staff, which I know we don't um, say this enough throughout the year. We talk about our contributing reporters that do the great on-the-ground reporting we get to talk about, but it can't be overstated. We can't do the show without everybody in the newsroom that works so hard. We are a distillation of their hard work. That's that's well said. And I also just want to let everyone listening to the show know um, we're going to be off for two weeks. We're going to be gone for the Christmas holidays and then preparing for the live show we mentioned at the start of today's program. That live show is, again, going to be on Wednesday, January 16th at 11 a.m., And for anybody who's not in the New York area, we're going to release that later on so people will be able to hear what we talked about. Hopefully we don't bump. Yeah, that'd be good. Uh, Yeah, we're we're all going to hope for that for the new year. As always, music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Little Glass Men. And if you want to know more about any of the things we talked about, especially these big stories from 2018, check out our website. It's law360.com slash podcast. Please subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. Thanks, and see you in 2019.